0: Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Today, our honored guest is Maria Tatar. Maria Tatar is one of the world's leading folklorists. At Harvard University, she is the John L. Loeb Research Professor of Folklore and Mythology and Germanic Languages and Literatures, as well as a Senior Fellow. Our guest's research focuses on modern German culture, folklore and children's literature. Maria is recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies and the National Endowment for the Humanities. She has written books about Weimar culture, the Brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, and Childhood Reading. One of her recent works, The Annotated Peter Pan, commemorates 100 years of J.M. Barrie's novel, Peter and Wendy. As an editor, her work includes the Norton Critical Edition of the Classic Fairy Tales and the Annotated Brothers Grimm. She has written for the New York Times, The New Republic, and the Harvard Crimson. Her work has also been featured on the Today Show and in Harvard Magazine. Today, Maria is in conversation with Banyan Books about her latest book, The Heroine with 1,001 Faces. It's a fantastic book. In this book, she reveals an astonishing but long buried history of heroines taking us from Cassandra and Cheserada to Nancy Drew and Wonder Woman. She explores how heroines rarely wielding a sword and deprived of a pen have flown beneath the radar even as they have been bent on social missions. Using the domestic arts and storytelling skills, they have displayed audacity, curiosity and care as they struggled to survive and change the reigning culture. Scholar and writer Lewis Hyde says this, going forward, everyone from kindergarten teachers to movie moguls will have to have the heroine with 1001 faces at hand before they begin their work. So Banyan Books community, please join me in a warm welcome for our guest today, Maria Tatar. Maria, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Really a pleasure to have you here. Now, this book is quite epic in its proportions and it's, and it's, it's a groundbreaking work. Um, I'm very curious to know how you came to write this and what your process was like in its creation.
1: Well, in many ways, I've been writing this book all my life. And I know that's something of a cliche for writers to say, but I'll take you to the beginning point and the end point in the motivate, in the drive to write this book. First, a mildly traumatic incident from my childhood uh, when. I was sitting in one of those vast soulless auditoriums looking at the prompt for an advanced placement test uh, that was, you know, my passport, going to be my passport to college. And what was the question, but what is a hero? And I started, I was a bookish child, so this should have been a softball question for me, but I found myself rattling off the names of heroes and realizing that they were all disasters, uh, that they were natural born killers. uh, They were experts in carnage. And and so I was completely baffled and I froze and I ended up writing a deeply embarrassing essay about courage that made no sense at all. Um, And so I think in some ways that was the beginning, uh, although it was still very much in my unconscious up through the pandemic. And if you remember, in the first days, the first weeks of the pandemic, the spooky silence that uh, that uh, came with the pandemic, uh, suddenly, uh, suddenly we were faced with a situation in which the message was stay at home, don't do anything, don't go out, don't try to, you know, there was no possibility in some ways for heroic action. It was up to the healthcare care workers and to the scientists who were driven by curiosity, who had been driven by curiosity to find ways uh, to counter these sorts of uh, viruses, to come up with vaccines. So care and curiosity, in some ways, those were the two beacons of hope for me. And uh, so, uh, you know, Carlos Fuentes says that all writing is a struggle against silence. And I think that this book, although, you know, I think of it more as a labor of love than a struggle. It was what kept me alive during the pandemic. And, uh, and the pandemic of course gave me an opportunity to read as I had read as a child, to read voraciously, uh, to reread in wonderful ways. And suddenly these
0: patterns became, began emerging. Wonderful. Now, uh, I'd like to touch first on, on Joseph Campbell's work, of course, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces has, has garnered so much attention over the years. And just curious to know, what is your relationship to Campbell and his work and how has it influenced this particular book of yours?
1: Well, we can start with my title, I think, and I always love it when titles encapsulate the argument of a book. I didn't quite succeed with uh, this title, but as you can see, there are two references. The first is to Campbell, Campbell's 1949 book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and um, this is a book that uh, became a playbook for Hollywood. It gives us the stations of the hero's journey, 12 in all, and I won't recount all of them, um, but at beginning with the departure and the call to adventure, uh, the hero then moves through an ordeal and returns to civilization with an elixir or a magic potion, something that is healing. Now, Campbell when you open up Campbell's book, which is, uh, you know, it's a challenging, tough read. I I remember spending an entire uh, week with it at one point, reading, you know, doing nothing but reading The Hero with a Thousand Faces. There are very few women mentioned in that book. We have mainly military leaders, uh, spiritual leaders, and, uh, and of course, women, being confined to domestic spaces for much of history didn't have the possibility of going on a journey. And uh, one of the things that I did was to shift the focus from the hero's journey to the heroine's mission. Uh, That is looking at heroines who are driven by, again, by care and curiosity, which are, by the way, etymologically related, um, and women who are also trying to bend the arc of the moral universe, to justice, to justice, using the domestic arts and crafts, uh, spinning, weaving, and above all storytelling uh, to sometimes save themselves, uh, but also to save the culture in or to change the culture in which they live. So rather than using swords and weapons, they're using words and stories to change the world. And that, of course, takes us to the other reference in my title, The Thousand and One Heroines. And there, I'm not really trying to do Campbell one better, I, I'm trying to show the infinite number of possibilities for heroism, for heroism. Um, And in Arabic, a thousand and one means both literally a thousand and one and also an infinite, unending, unending number. So here we are with Scheherazade. And what does Scheherazade do? She volunteers uh, to wed Shahriyar, who has been marrying a new woman every day, and then... The day, the morning after he decapitates that woman, uh, she volunteers. And what does she do to survive? She tells cliffhangers. She tells stories that are so exciting and so seductive that Sh- Sharyar decides to delay her e- execution. And so it's through storytelling that she saves her own neck. But more importantly, she changes shariar and the culture in which she lives. She ends this reign, uh, this terrible reign of, of violence. So in some ways, I, I think, you know, the, the goal of this study was to try to install some new foundational figures, um, not just Eve and, and Pandora, who bring evil into the world because of their curiosity, which is often misinterpreted, uh, but uh, to, bring in, to bring Scheherazade into the picture and show what she does.
0: Right. Okay. Now, there's a quote from your book, and I wanted to ask you about this, the power of myths and fairy tales, but also what has been lost in terms of the feminine side. So the quote is, myths and fairy tales invite us to hit the refresh button, oxygenate the characters, fill in the gaps of the plot, and make new versions. Let us not forget that they were improvised in social spaces. As an early form of collective bargaining, with call and response, give and take, and a chatty back and forth that often took the form of, that's not how I heard it. So how does this understanding give permission and open the floodgates for this kind of reimagining of the limited ways that these stories have been told up until now?
1: Oh, I'm so glad you raised that issue because, of course, myth and fairy tale, they're part of the cauldron of story, what Tolkien called the great cauldron of story. But if we go back to ancient times, they're part of an oral storytelling culture and uh, there is a back and forth. Now, you know, these stories then migrated into new media into uh, print, uh, uh, print culture, they became novels, uh, they became plays, Uh, today they've, they've moved into uh, film culture, And, and when they do that, they also change, and, you know, the wonderful thing is that it's never the same old story. So when you mentioned oxygenate the characters, uh, think of all of these women writers, starting with Margaret Atwood and her extraordinary Penelope, which gives you the odyssey from Penelope's point of view, to uh, Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls, where we suddenly see the events of the Trojan War through the eyes of Briseis or Pat Barker's The Woman, Women of Troy, or Natalie Haynes's uh, A Thousand Chips. Suddenly, we not only have a new perspective, but we're also inside the minds of the characters in a way that we rarely are in the Iliad or the Odyssey. Also, not in fairy tales at all, all because they're so action-packed and everything is on the surface. Um, if a character is sad, they just sit down and cry. We don't learn about how they're how they're sad. Uh, so you've raised a really big issue, one that uh, takes us to the whole question of how stories are constantly reinvented, repurposed, recycled, made relevant, and then adjusted according to the medium and also the teller and the and the audience. So. Um, you know, there's a there's a constant trend, which is, of course, a great thing because, as I said, we don't want things to ossify and never change. Uh, metamorphosis, change, renewal, is at the heart of storytelling of our storytelling practices.
0: Thank you. Now, one of the major themes throughout the book is that when the when the hero's stories are told through the eyes of the feminine perspective. Um, they're they're striving for things like care, curiosity, and social justice. You touched on it a few moments ago, um, in the first question about the etymological roots of the of the word care, and they're tied, I believe, with curiosity. Is that true? Uh,
1: yes. Uh, think of curiosity, cura, uh, which means care. Uh, And if you go to the Oxford English Dictionary and start to look at not just the etymology but the various uses of of curiosity, you discover that curiosity once meant many centuries ago um, in its first documented uses meant paying care and uh, attentive concern to something so uh I mean, I just mentioned Eve and Pandora, who are in vest who are curious creatures uh eve's curiosity has been interpreted as uh carnal curiosity when in fact you know she wants to eat of the tree of the, uh she wants to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge um uh, and and so women has been, have been positioned uh, through their curiosity as bringing sin and evil into the world. When in fact, that curiosity can be seen as something very different. It can be an inflected uh, very differently and it often takes the form of uh, caring about others, wanting to break out of a certain mold, be adventurous and exploratory. And often limits are set on that, on that curiosity.
0: And I was really, uh, particularly in this realm, in your book, the story of Bluebeard uh, stood out to me. And can you tell us a little bit about, I didn't know that story. Can you tell us a bit about that story? And why was the focus on the sort of villainization of the wife's curiosity versus the murderous tendencies of the husband?
1: Yes, isn't that extraordinary? That's a famous uh, fairy tale, first recorded in, in France by Charles Perrault, and it's still read by French children today, shockingly, although it's it's often left out of editions of Perrault in the United States, and English-speaking countries, uh, and it's a story about a serial murderer, a man who, think of Shariar, too, uh, a man who murders his wives, usually seven wives, and the tale begins with uh, a new marriage. Uh, Bluebeard uh, manages to persuade the mother of three daughters to have one of the daughters marry him. Um, They have a grand old time in the palace. Bluebeard's wife invites all her friends, and in the meantime, what does she do? She takes the key that her husband has given to her he's offered her a key and he said, you could, you can go anywhere you want, just don't go, don't go uh, into the room uh, uh, that has a, don't go into the room uh, that can be opened with this particular key. Well, of course, you know, he's almost inviting her to transgress and sure enough, she goes into that room and what does she see but the corpses of his previous wives hanging, sometimes hanging from a hook, sometimes on the ground, Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a kind of foundational horror story. Uh, So there she is, and she's so frightened by what she sees that she drops the key, stains it with blood, and when Bluebeard asks for the key, he knows that she has opened the door, and he threatens to kill her. She begs for her life, and at the last minute, Sister Anne, who has mysteriously been in the castle, summons help from the brothers and rescues uh, Bluebeard's wife. Uh, So Uh, Charles Perrault attached a moral to that story and the moral was women don't be so curious and ever after everyone who addressed that story through Bettelheim and the uses of enchantment said that it was a warning about disobedience and about sexual curiosity uh, when it's in fact a story about a serial murder about the dangers of marrying a stranger. Um, what can happen to you and this was a story that was probably told in those uh, domestic arenas in the spinning rooms in the storytelling circles in uh sewing um uh sewing groups and and that kind of thing to talk about you know what the worst possible thing that could happen in a marriage uh to get people talking and you know in some ways you needed uh a horror story you needed something that magnified and enlarged the perils of marriage to get people talking and to tell their own stories and to gossip about this person and that person so you know another case of uh, curiosity being demonized and seen as negative when in fact it can be a life-saving uh, uh, tool And and you see that in all of the women detectives that emerge in the course of the 20th century. You know, they want to get to the bottom of things, and they want to make sure that the world is safe for other women. A prime example, Lisbeth Salander in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, who's this wonderfully mercurial creature who is out not just to get revenge uh, for the abuse to which she's been subjected, but also to make the world a better place for other women.
0: Yes. I wanna touch on this idea of telling a single story. I love what you had to say about the way the hero with a thousand faces has been tragically reduced to a stereotype, one that is not just incomplete but in a sense also untrue for it often tells only a small part of a story, just half the story and sometimes even less than that. Now, I just want to add that I do know quite a few men in, in today's culture that are worried that masculinity is under attack. And I disagree. I wholeheartedly feel that it's actually what's, what's happening is we're hearing more of the story now instead of just a single story. And you mentioned, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's 2009 TED talk on the perils of reductive thinking and of telling a single story. Can you speak to that?
1: Oh, yes. That's, uh, I think, a a quite extraordinary statement the perils of a single story. And uh, as I was writing this book, I began to understand the importance of what Nietzsche actually called perspective perspectivalism that is seeing things from different perspectives and how you can never really get to the truth without understanding those different perspectives. Think of the story of Philomela. Uh, It may not be one that is all that familiar to um, uh, to a a general audience, but it's a story that appears in uh, Edith Hamilton's mythology. And in Ovid's uh, Metamorphoses, it's in some versions, it's titled The Dangerous Sisters. Well, here's the deal. Uh, Philomela is raped by her brother-in-law, Tereus. She threatens to broadcast what he has done, to broadcast the sexual assault. And how does he respond? By cutting out her tongue. And Ovid gives us a, a vivid description of that, that tongue quivering on the, on the floor. Uh, so what does, what does Philomela do but resort to the domestic arts and crafts, using cunning, using craft, also using beauty in an odd way? Uh, I think that has to be brought into the story as well. She creates this beautiful and horrifying tapestry, which she gives to her sister, and it depicts her rape. Uh, and uh, the two sisters then are united uh, in a terrible act of revenge, so they do become dangerous, but the fact that the story is, is uh, you know, there's a kind of endless cycle of revenge, but the fact that the story is described as the dangerous sisters uh, uh, reveals exactly how we've been looking at these stories from a single perspective or the story of, I mean, think of, uh, the Odyssey, Odysseus. We see things from his perspective, but, um, uh, read Circe, not just Margaret Atwood's Penelope Odd, but Madeline Miller's extraordinary novel Circe, and we get her story, her backstory, and we discover, uh, a completely different uh, world. And, uh, and so, you know, we need these different versions of a, of a story in order, not just to arrive at some abstract truth, because I don't think we'll ever do that. That's sort of a fantasy. But to engage with the story and to start talking about it and to say, you know, this is well as you said, this is not how I, this is not how I want to think about it. I want to tell it this way. And there's been this wonderful efflorescence of storytelling and I've, I've gotten wonderful messages and letters uh, from readers of my book who have sent me their own stories, sometimes autobiographical and sometimes fictional uh, reminding me of how writing is not just a form of therapy, telling your story is not just a form of therapy, but also a form of self-actualization, of figuring out who you are, what your identity is, what your values are, and how you want to move into the future.
0: Right, and this is one of the major themes in your book is the power of speaking up and sharing one's story. What is the healing power in that? Um,
1: sharing the story. Well, first of all, no longer being silenced. Uh, that is, you know, there are two sides to that particular story. And, and I think I, I spent a lot of time talking about the various strategies that have been used uh, to silence women. Uh, I, I could, I've, I've mentioned a few examples. I could also mention Cassandra, who loses her credibility who is uh, given the gift of prophecy by Apollo, Uh, he's interested in seducing her, Uh, she has misgivings about about that, so he takes it back by spitting in her mouth, which means that nobody will ever believe what she says. Uh, So that's another form of, of silencing, in a way. So you have all of these different strategies that have been used, including Reducing women's talk to gossip and chatter and idle chit chat Uh, and then the extraordinary power of telling of telling a story, which is, as I said earlier, the one weapon that women had the sword that I hate to use these military metaphors, but the strategy that women had for getting their version of a story out there for seeing things from a new perspective and uh, and as I said, you know, that can be both therapeutic but also world-changing and uh, creating new communities, new communities for not just telling stories but thinking about what we can do to change the cur- current circumstances in which we're living.
0: Right, right. You've touched on beauty and I, I really am interested in this, what you call the double bind of beauty that women may have found themselves in historically, where they're both prized and mm-hmm. condemned for their beauty. Can you speak? Yes, that? yes
1: right. Well, first, uh, the Trojan War, how did it all start? A beauty contest. Uh, and, and we know about the danger. Helen of Troy is often blamed for. Um, for, for for the war, when in fact the Greeks probably just wanted to loot Troy. Uh, I mean, there's another way of looking at, at that particular story. So, uh, uh, and, and think of, well, Dickens' version of the French Revolution, which traces everything to a sexual assault on a woman. I mean, so th- there's a funny way in which women are blamed for a, a lot. And we could go back to Pandora, who brought toil, famine, uh, plagues, uh, war into, into the world. Uh, so, uh, there is a way, though, in which I think women also deploy beauty. Uh, I mean, we could talk about, you know, seduction and the Judith and Holofernes, for example, or this idea of using your beauty as a, a powerful weapon, in a way, weaponizing your beauty. And, That story is not one that I, I tell in this particular book, although I've touched on it in other places. But then there's, there's a whole question of, uh, as I said, these domestic crafts, which also are creative and beautiful and artful. And, and so that there's that artistic dimension to women's work uh and to their storytelling of course the stories are also beautiful and Madeline Miller's Circe is just so moving and uh powerful so that is one aspect the beauty and creativity and handicrafts uh, that's a part of the story that I touch on in this book though I, I would love to see someone do more with that particular topic
0: right William Marston's Wonder Woman what an amazing story uh, he was he was such an uh I guess an odd duck for his time really wasn't he can you tell us a little bit about his background and and the emergence of Wonder Woman
1: yes um extraordinary and if you want to know more read Joel Lepore's uh, book on 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 Marston and Wonder Wonder Woman uh which was a great adventure for me. I remember this was one of the uh, thrills of writing this book is to discover these worlds that other writers had opened up. As a child, I read Wonder Woman uh, comics and uh, was completely enamored of her, even though, you know, she wore that odd bathing suit. Uh, I worried a little bit about that. But can you imagine Marston uh, invents in Wonder Woman in the fort, third, late 30s, uh, early 40s, around the time that Joseph Campbell is writing The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and they're really in the same part of the world also, which is kind of an eerie thought, and I've always wondered whether Campbell's students came with the baggage of Wonder Woman to Sarah Lawrence, and um, and maybe asked about someone like a figure like Wonder Woman and uh, so so Marston invents uh, this um, superheroine who is uh, a sort of a representative of the strength of women who be, who will save the world. Through their beauty, through their power, through their magnetism, through their electrical abilities, and um, and and will change the world. And he saw a future in which women would dominate men, um, and uh, and for him this would be a real revolution. It would mean an end to war and to uh, aggression and and belligerence. Uh, so it, it's it's extraordinary that he has not been credited with uh, changing the culture more, because I think many many in my generation and in successive generations and in earlier generations too grew up with that series, which was followed by uh, a, a comic book series about famous women. Uh, now these famous women, and I remember reading this too, were predominantly nurse. It started out with Florence Nightingale, Edith Cavell, Clara Barton. These were nurses, caregivers. Uh, you know, in those days, women were pretty much uh, excluded from the medical profession. They did not become doctors, but they engaged in extraordinary acts of heroism as nurses, um, and and so. Um, So I I think that that was the early version of many of the volumes that are coming out today about rebel girls and, uh, uh, women who persist, uh, nevertheless, they persist, persisted. Um, and all of these new heroines that we've discovered
0: from our collective past. So there's this concept, you call it emotional heavy lifting. I'll read this quote. And this is something that, uh, I was aware of, but not consciously, and maybe as a man, it's it's a different perspective. So you say the history of nursing bears out the fact that women, instead of being celebrated for their heroism, have been repeatedly penalized and punished for the extraordinary emotional heavy lifting they have performed in our social world. So I'm wondering if you can just unpack that a little bit for us in terms of, First off, what do you mean by emotional heavy lifting for those who might not be um, have a full understanding of what that really means?
1: Great question, and it reminds me that I haven't given enough thought to it, in a way, to the whole question of of what is now known as emotional labor, the kind of work that uh, stewardess, what we used to call stewardesses, uh, flight attendants today, uh, did on airplanes. That is, uh, they not only carried out their tasks, but they dealt with the anxieties of passengers uh, with uh, disabilities. They did all kinds of work that then, you know, put them into the box. Of uh, oh that's women's women's work and it's sort of unpaid, not only undignified in a, or not dignified with the aura of respect of, of labor carried out by men, but also uh, not not paid um, uh, in in a way. So so that kind of um, the, this bifurcation of let's say uh, medical practices into nursing and caring for people on the one hand and then operating or um, let's say prescribing medicines on the other is 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 so deeply problematic. Uh, and it reminds me that today I'm told psychiatrists, psychoanalysts and therapists tell me that what do what do doctors and physicians do? They basically just write out prescriptions and they leave the therapy, the caregiving to uh, professions that are dominated mainly by women. Think of the absurdity of, um, uh, it's in Meet the Parents that uh, Greg Fokker wants to be, aspires to be a nurse, and that's considered laughable by the macho, macho uh, father of his, of his fiance. But now, that's a, a stereotype and a cliche, but it's one that still holds true today, I think. Uh, now, we should talk a little bit about how that is changing, how that, you know, strict bifurcation into male-female, you know, it's changing right before our eyes. Uh, but when I look out my window here, if I see a carriage, uh, a baby carriage, a stroller, it's often pushed by a guy, at least half the time. Um, and uh, and so, not only are roles rapidly shifting and morphing and transforming into one another, uh, but there's also a kind of fluidity that is taking place, uh, gender fluidity. And, uh, and I think, you know, what you mentioned before about men who are worried about being emasculated, but also lots of men who are are discovering the model of the heroine and are embracing it and are are saying, that's exactly what I've been doing. And I don't, I don't want to be that military hero. I don't, you know, in our culture today, what are we doing? We're taking down the statues of Confederate uh, soldiers and we're raising new statues of civil rights workers. Uh, Mary Bethune is now in the ha- statuary hall in, um, in the Capitol. Uh, and uh, we have tributes to emancipation which show us enslaved peoples and it's not so much that we're turning just to to victims but to those who have been courageous and who have sought even as victims to survive and to help others uh, Harriet Tubman uh I mean what an extraordinary story that is and you know we still don't have the twenty dollar bill but my God, we will one day. I hope. And there she is. She frees herself. She's she's born as an enslaved person. She liberates herself. And what what's the first thing on her mind? What does she do? She wants to go back and rescue rescue others and become a conductor on the Underground Railroad.
0: No. I want to come back to Joseph Campbell for a moment. I'm I'm curious because you share uh, in your epilogue, you share a quote from his uh, book, Goddesses. And I'm wondering, do you think that his perspective may have changed uh, through his career? He mentions this liftoff that he saw happening. And uh... what kind of changes do you think he saw? And what kind of changes do you see happening now and going forward?
1: Yeah, you know, I, um, I grew uh, to respect Campbell more and more as I wrote this book. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning this idea of, uh, of uh, the he sees women as uh, those who give birth to the hero, um, who also um, are muses and serve as the goal of the hero. Uh, so he sort of excludes women. For, although hardly he starts with the frog princess and a girl who hurls a frog against against the, who's angry and stands up to this frog. Uh, but that's about that's he doesn't have much to say about women. So I think over the years uh, he has a he studies goddesses of course too, but uh, he begins to see that the models are changing, and he sees the. Um, way in which women are entering the labor force in new ways and discovers new possibilities uh, for them. And Campbell is somebody who was so wonderfully adventurous. That is, uh, he didn't limit He started out deeply interested in Native American lore. And he was outraged uh, by the US's treatment of indigenous peoples and the way in which uh, indigenous peoples had been robbed of their, of their lands. Uh, so he started with his own, his own world and then expanded out, going all over the world in search of um, spiritual wisdom of his own. He didn't, he, he quit graduate school because they were trying to box him in geographically. And he was so wonderfully expansive in that way. And in The in the Power of Myth, too, I think, you know, you see him in conversation with Bill Moyers and how he's in, he is truly in conversation and learning from Moyers as well. And uh, in addition to that, he's going to the movies. And Hollywood is, uh, whatever you say about Hollywood, they are often ahead of the curve and seeing things. Uh, they have to be in a way that are not in our... Uh, collective imagination, not consciously in our collective imagination. So there he was. I'm surprised he didn't change more rapidly given the fact that he wasn't Sarah Lawrence. But I think that was in part because he was such a celebrity and uh, kind of untouchable in a way. So people were reluctant to challenge his views uh, in, in many ways. But um, yes, I mean, Campbell is just such a fascinating fascinating um, uh, person, just personally, uh, uh, a, a great subject to uh, look at in, uh, in biographical
0: terms. Thank you. Um, before we get to our audience questions, I just wanted to ask because your book, The Heroine with a Thousand and One Faces, it is, it is part of a groundbreaking body of, of literature that is emerging. And I'm curious to know um, your reflections on your book at this point. Now that you've started doing interviews and having conversations, what kind of new doorways are you seeing being opened in yourself and in these conversations that you maybe expected or didn't expect through your book?
1: Oh, well, that's a a great question. And I suppose I should take a look at that in autobiographical terms, first of all, and and thinking about how, as a culture, we now value empathy, and uh, it's something that we preach in the schools. Uh, we're living in an age of empathy. There are hundreds of books about empathy that come out on a, on a uh, almost monthly, Well, y- annual basis, let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. I, I think that for me, you know, empathy is a, such an important virtue. And we want to know about the pain of others, the suffering of others and, and feel what they feel get under their skin and all of that. But I'm hoping that I personally and the culture too, makes the move from empathy and feeling to curiosity and action Uh, because curiosity, as I mentioned, has that element of care in it and when you care you 're going to do more than feel, I think you 're actually going to go out into the world and do something, and I think the pandemic has also even though we 're still you know restricted in many ways. you know a friend of mine wanted to work on a suicide hotline, a therapist of many years, and was told that he could not do that because uh, they had uh, halted the training program, which had to be in person. So in some ways our opportunities are, are are limited in ways, but I think we have to prepare ourselves to go back into the world, uh, and you know try I, I do you know trying to make a difference uh, to actually do something with those feelings that we have with those uh, empathetic. Um, Uh, feelings that we that we have learned to foster and promote in ourselves. And now's the time to translate them into action.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Okay, we've got some really nice looking questions here from our live audience. Um, The first one we're going to get to is from Mike, who says, When we're speaking about either the hero's journey or the heroine's, I feel like there's a risk of thinking about our stories through a binaristic lens. How do we use these comparative models or analyses of myth and story to break through the binary toward a vision and the creation of of more diverse stories? Oh,
1: well, that's a great question. And one that I have worried quite a lot about because I'm looking backwards. At our history and where we've positioned, how we've positioned heroes and heroines. Uh, I'm also deeply interested in the heroism of everyday lives. That is, you know, we wake up every morning to a new adventure uh, and we have to go through, depending on where we're socially situated, we have to go through ordeals. And uh, by the end of the day or the end of the week or the end of the month, we've Let's hope that we've done something. So, in some ways, I think we could talk about heroes with a capital H, cultural heroes, and heroes with a, a lowercase h. I always felt at the end of when I was raising small cho- raising children, I always felt I should get a medal at the end of the day. Uh, I had been, you know, it's it, raising a child is is a, a raising children is heroic. Um, so um, we could think in terms of the capital H and the small h. And maybe, you know, what is the path forward? I'm not sure that I have the answer. Do we just make hero, uh, kind of generic? I'm I'm not so sure if we should make that move, but how do we break the binary? And I think one way that we do it is to say we're totally comfortable as men and women, as non-binary, moving back and forth on a spectrum of possibilities maybe we have to invent a new word that that is not gender specific at all, but that opens up the infinite possibilities that are available in heroism. And what I want my book to do though, is start a conversation, not about a journey, uh, but about the values that are embedded in our idea of what it means to be heroic. So that's a, a partial answer. And I know that you can't respond back, but um, thank you for the question. And I hope that um, it's the beginning of an answer, at least.
0: Thank you. I, I just want to say, uh, you know, just from a masculine, a male perspective, the most mature and confident men that, that I know are the ones that are, they have no qualms about saying, yeah, this is my feminine side. And, you know, there's no, it's not a dirty word for them to be expressing in the feminine um oh, yes
1: thank you for that and I, I love the fact that men now talk about i mean i find that men are more interested in cooking than women uh, that is it seems to be uh it seems to be a new trend uh the food culture is something that is maybe because they've been kept from it for so long
0: yeah i think that might be true There's a question here from Annette who says, I've spent the last 20 years bringing storytelling to business consulting to widen perspectives, but they prefer the hero story as a format. What hints have you found to entice those who want to control the multiple narratives to instead be curious as to what they have to say?
1: Well, that's, uh, there's a lot to unpack there, uh, sort of controlling the narratives and thinking about the concept of a hero as male with a capital H. And I assume by storytelling, you're sort of talking about looking at individual, uh, individual uh, experiences and communicating those. I have to say that I always feel a little bit uncomfortable with um, sort of the business model for storytelling or sometimes even, I remember once a Dean here at Harvard uh, who recruited chairs to get him to start thinking about uh, fundraising. And he said, "Oh, I want your stories. I want to hear. You know, I, I I want to enliven this, and and I want this to be about storytelling." And I immediately recoiled from that concept because I saw it as sort of opportunistic in a way. Although, you know, in in many ways, you could argue he was doing the right thing. Uh, he was trying to uh, put out stories about transformation and and change and how uh, students through their education came to be empowered as scientists or as engineers or as scholars. So those individual stories can be truly powerful. Uh, The stories of an immigrant who comes to this country at age Uh, five or so, and uh, does something, and I will cite a real-life example, who does nothing but does, but uh, watch Disney films, uh, each one a hundred times, and then lo and behold becomes a writer, uh, a a successful writer whose books are turned into films, Uh, so, so yes, that's a,
0: a partial answer to your question, thank you for that. Thank you. There's a question from Arlo and this is an interesting one. I'm sure you get asked this and I I know the answer. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Uh, Arlo asks, are there stages or stations of the heroine's journey parallel to Campbell's stages of the hero's journey? Oh, well, I want to hear your answer to that, <laughs> um,
1: but I guess uh, I guess in some ways implicitly, and I think I say this in the book, too, I'm, I'm moving against that, you know, although there's a wonderful book by Maureen Murdoch called The Heroine's Journey, so you might want to look at that, but um, there, there are many fairy tales in which women do travel, um, and in one, uh, a young woman puts on iron shoes, And she has to wear them out before she finds the beloved and has a chance to rescue him and to redeem him. So uh one could look at actual physical journeys, uh women who who do travel on and, and uh undertake redemptive uh journeys, but for the most part, because they stay at home, they can only go, undergo a kind of spiritual journey or transformation. And that of course happened because everything is a is is a journey. Uh but uh I think I'm reluctant to um try to take Campbell's model and create a female counterpart for the very reasons that I stated at the outset,
0: because the woman's experience is so very different. And what what about you? <laughs> well, I sorry, I, I should reframe that. I had heard you in your interview yesterday uh, speak to that, and so i I, I kind of knew. A little bit how you might respond Um, to it and why you would steer clear. So not that I personally know the answer. I don't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) You
1: know (laughs) a lot. Just modest.
0: (laughs) Um, there's there's a note from Annette who had asked the question about storytelling in the in the business setting. And she just she added and she said, That's my point, actually. How to keep it from being opportunistic with a question mark. Oh, Oh,
1: great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I wish I knew the answer, and probably how to keep it. I think maybe that you have to really feel passionate about that particular story, and uh, if it if it touches you and hits you, then it seems to me it's it's all right. Uh, but if you're just using it in an exploitative way, it's uh, it is deeply problematic.
0: On the on the um the question of, of sort of the stages in the heroine's journey, there's a question from Catherine who says, are you familiar with Kim Hudson's The Virgin's Promise? And how do you feel about the 12 steps of her heroine's journey?
1: Oh, yikes. No, I am not familiar with that. And I, you know, there is, oh gosh, uh, you know, I plunged into this sea of literature and then post publication, uh, you know, I'm learning that I could really write another, I'm not going to write a second volume, I'll leave that to somebody else, but uh, there, there's so much more out there. And, you know, it's extraordinary how much, um, uh, how much scholarship is out there about, you know, the distaff side, uh, women's jer- women's journeys actually, and um, and their heroism.
0: Right, thank you. There's a, there's a question from Karen here, and I might have a follow-up question to this one, actually. Karen asks, why do you think we are seeing so many retellings of ancient myths right now? Uh, well, great,
1: great question. And I would say that um, part of it started with fairy tales, actually retellings of fairy tales. Not so much from a different perspective, but just, you know, a reboot of, say, the story of Snow White or Cinderella. Uh, You have the cinematic version, Snow White and the Huntsman. Uh, You have all these different versions of Cinderella. Little Red Riding Hood, there's Hard Candy, Freeway. Uh, but there were also the women in the 80s and 90s, uh, Anne Sexton's Transformations, uh, Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber, uh, Margaret Atwood's rewriting of, of fairy tales. These efforts to uh, mine stories from times past for material and to create new liberating new narratives with a liberating potential. And I think that there's something about myths, you know, myths are sacred stories. So, you know, I talked earlier about the great cauldron of stories, but myths being sacred stories seemed kind of untouchable. So I think the the move after fairy tales, after these iconoclastic uh, retellings of fairy tales, was to take the myths and look at them from different, different perspectives, take them apart, and I think it took, I, I can't say that it took more courage, because um, Sexton, Carter, and Atwood, uh, Tony Morrison, who did the same thing with African-American folklore, uh, really, so, so, so courageous, and um, uh, and, but, but I think that there was a kind of reluctance to move to the Odyssey, the Iliad. How dare you touch that? I mean, we have a translation by uh, a woman for the first time of the Odyssey, and um, uh, so so I think that was a uh, a slower move, and uh, and now that it's happened, of course, I, I think uh, there will be a pr- proliferation of these narratives, and they're so fascinating they're just endlessly fascinating.
0: Right. Thank you. Thanks to everybody for, for submitting your questions. Really wonderful to see. And before, before we close, I just wanna take this opportunity to, to thank our live audience, of course, and thank everyone in the Banyan Books community who's supported the, the store over the years. And uh, our, our owner, Colin Limworth, who's been at it for 50 years and still going strong. And um, Jacob Steele, who's our our uh, podcast producer and events coordinator for Banyan, who sort of curates and and makes brings all these uh, events and programs to the fore for all of us. Um, Maria, I would I'd like to close by just asking you what what's next for you. Um, this is this is an amazing book. How are you? How do you plan to to build on it going forward, or what kind of projects are you looking at now?
1: Oh, well, my my first project is always to clean up, <laughs> and that that that's taking a, a a while. But you know, I'm not sure. I, I think possibly uh, something creative, uh, and and I always like to alternate uh, sort of workbooks, works that really require labor, uh, love too, of course, uh, with books that are fun, fun to write. So. Who knows? I'm, I'm going to just let things percolate right now. And I'm just enjoying tremendously the response to the book and the opportunity to talk with people like you about it. And I hope one of these days to come into the shop in person.
0: Oh, we'd love to have and, you there. Um, really and get some
1: books from you.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Everyone. Her book is called the heroine with a thousand and one faces. We've been speaking with Maria Tatar. And Maria, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at Banyan.com.